We're increasingly dependent on technology. Our business and personal lives rely on it, but as you probably noticed, it's unreliable, and it's getting worse. Our computers are slow, so we end up squinting at our smartphones. We live in constant fear that something's going to happen to our personal data, so we're scared into paying for fake protection that proves useless when disaster strikes. The jokers we pay to fix our stuff have no clue what they're doing, and they use 1980s virus scans, and they end up wiping out our precious photos and telling us to buy a new machine. If only we had someone to explain it all in plain English, so we can start protecting ourselves. If only we had the Computer Exorcist podcast with me, Mark Anthony Arena. Hi folks. Yeah, this is a brand new chapter in my life. After being a local talk show host for the past decade, from 2012 to 2022, I uh, decided to retire from that, and I started this here podcast in the hopes that my message would go beyond Rochester. I started this business back in 09 and I was just a guy looking to pay the bills and what I discovered is there are industry-wide scandals happening and the world needs to know about them so here I am ready to tell you and when I tell people about these scandals like update attacks and fake Wi-Fi cloud-controlled gizmos and so on uh, people are ready to get torches and pitchforks when they hear what's being done to them without their knowledge. So that's the concept of this show, <clears throat> and I'm so happy you joined me today. We'll probably go for about half hour uh, each episode, and probably weekly we'll release them. We'll see how it goes. TheComputerExorcist.com or Technosophy.com to learn more about me. And that's T-E-K-N-O-S-O-P-H-Y dot com, and that's the name of my business. Um, but TheComputerExorcist.com is the easier one to spell. So on this show, what I'll do is I'll read articles from the tech industry, and then I will yell out my opinion on them. Um, you'll you'll notice I'm snarky, but it's 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 a way for me to vent and express my frustration, but it's also a way to, to make you laugh and to make it interesting. Um, so don't take offense to any of it. Um, we'll also have special guests in the upcoming episodes, because I know y'all love them. We're going to get some fascinating, fascinating people, as, as I always find. Uh, and we will talk to them about their industries and how they are similar to, to me and how our approaches are similar. Our first article for the show 
is one from July and August of 2012, uh, sorry, 2002, okay? Yeah, this show is January of 2023, okay? But this article here is from MIT's magazine of innovation called Technology Review, and it's from July and August of 2002. Mark, why are you reading old articles? Oh, you'll see, folks, you'll see. You know, what I said in my book, um, and I say this all the time on the show, is look, the examples change, but the concepts are the same, okay? The concepts are the same. And this um, magazine from O2 has on the cover why software is so bad and how to fix it. And unfortunately, this concept is still true. The concept still remains uh, unfortunately, that software is still horrible and unreliable and buggy and and just just structurally it's it's garbage piled on top of other garbage piled on top of other garbage because a lot of computer guys are lazy, so they just build on top of someone else's mess. Uh, so you have a a perfect ice cream parfait of mess. Anyway, uh, I want to thank my mentor, Barb, for this article, and as you'll see, the concepts are still the same 20 years later. Why software is so bad. Careless programming inflicts appalling costs, but finally, software firms are confronting the problem. Ha! Huh? It's one of the oldest jokes on the internet, endlessly forwarded. A software mogul, usually Bill Gates, makes a speech. If the automobile industry is developed like the software industry, we would all be driving $25 cars that get a 1,000 miles to the gallon. To which an auto exec retorts, Yeah, and if cars were like software, they would crash twice a day for no reason, and when you call for service, they'd tell you to reinstall the engine. Ha! <laughs> Little did they know that that's actually coming soon. The The arrogance and the chaos and the stupidity of the software industry is now... Uh, today spilling over into the auto industry and it's very sad pretty soon you'll have all those crashes in your cars software has become critical to almost every aspect of modern life ha wait till they see what happens in 20 in the 2020s software simply doesn't work reliably ask anyone who has watched a computer screen flush blue wiping out hours of effort Code is bloated, ugly, inefficient, and poorly designed. Even when programs do function correctly, users find them too hard to understand. Bookstore shelves uh, around the nation testify to the uh, perduring dysfunctionality of software. Software is simply terrible today, said Watts S. Humphrey, and it's getting worse all the time. Good software is usable, reliable, defect-free, cost-effective, and maintainable, and software now is none of these things. You can't take something out of the box and know it's going to work. Again, this article is 20 years old, folks, and this is still the case. I just found this article recently, but it's just... It, this is what I've been saying for years. It's garbage, and it has been for a long time, and it's still the case. The average computer user has been served so poorly that he expects the system to crash all the time and we witness a massive worldwide distribution of bug-ridden software for which we should be deeply ashamed. Right? The only difference between then and now is we're more reliant on this garbage. 
only the extreme usefulness of software lets us tolerate its huge deficiencies, right? It does a couple pretty fancy shiny things that we need to do, and it does it easier than an abacus, so apparently we're willing to put up with its extreme fatal flaws. Anyway, they say, most software sucks. <clears throat> Indeed. It is difficult to overemphasize the uniqueness of software's problems. When automotive engineers discuss the cars, they don't say that vehicles today are no better than they were 10 or 15 years ago. No one claims that Boeing or Airbus makes lousy planes, no. Software, alas, seems different. Software engineers believe software quality is not improving. If anything, it's getting worse. It's as if the cars Detroit produced in 2002 were less reliable than those built in 1982. Ha, well, wait till they see the future. As software becomes increasingly important, the potential impact of bad code will increase to match. Again, we're more reliant on this garbage now, but it hasn't gotten any better. Software defects have wrecked a European satellite launch, delayed the opening of the hugely expensive Denver airport, destroyed a NASA Mars mission, killed four Marines in a helicopter crash, induced a U.S. Navy ship to destroy a civilian airliner, and shut down ambulance systems in London. Um, and because of our growing dependence, we're much worse off than we were years ago. The risks are worse, and we're going backwards. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now think about all the, the massive amounts of pain and heartache and suffering that software has caused uh, over the past 20 years, all the crashes and crashes and glitches and glitches, and not to mention all the extreme fear and intimidation we live in because of the extreme incompetence of Microsoft. People live in such fear, they're willing to pay anyone that claims to clean or protect their machine, even though it's all fake. They're willing to pay anyone who calls them on the phone and says, Oh, you have viruses, give me 10 grand worth of gift cards. Oh, it's still bad. Think about all the worldwide heartache. These people have found themselves wondering if the real problem with software is that not enough lawyers are involved. No, that's not the case. Why is it always the human knee-jerk reaction of these journalists? Well, we need to call for reforms and call for laws. I mean, I get we need to do something to motivate these people to be, to be less garbage, but in my opinion, it's about raising awareness for better alternatives. It doesn't mean just legislating the same people, because even if you have a monopoly, and even if you legislate it, it's still a monopoly, right? What we need are better alternatives, okay? Anyway, I love this article, because, and I wanted to, I saved this for this, this very good, uh, um, this debut episode of my show, because it, it very perfectly describes the essence of my show. It's about why software is garbage, it's unreliable garbage, and what we can do about it. A lack of logic. Microsoft released Windows XP in October of 01. That same day, in what may be a record, the company posted 18 megabytes of patches on its websites. Bug fixes, compatibility updates, and enhancements. Two patches fixed important security holes. Well, one of them did. The other patch didn't even work. Microsoft advises users to back up critical files. Buyers discovered the system provided no way to restore your files if things went awry. The special backup floppy disk created by Windows XP doesn't work with Windows XP Home. Uh, and, and again, they, they think 18 megabytes is a lot. Whenever Microsoft unleashes a new uh, scourge on humanity now, there's billions of gigs of update attacks. 
which not only fail to work, but they damage things, right? The, that, this is the genesis of the con- concept of update attacks, right? They release a horribly imperfect product into the wild, and then they start chasing people around with chunks of duct tape and Bondo, trying to improve the filthy, rotten products that they released. Uh, when and, and worse yet, these, these chunks of duct tape and Bondo are destructive. Okay, that's the, the concept of, of what I uh, term an update attack. That's my term. And it means an update that damages your product, right? Okay, the real problems lie in software's basic design, or rather lack of design. Microsoft's popular Visual Studio programming software is an example. Simply placing the cursor over the Visual Studio window invisibly uh, barrages the central CPU with um, thousands of unnecessary messages. It's cataclysmic. It's total chaos. The blooming, buzzing confusion in Visual Studio and so many other programs betrays how the techniques for writing software have failed to keep up with the explosive increase in its complexity. Compilers refuse to compile code with obvious problems. They spit out error messages instead. Until the 70s, uh, compilers sat on mainframes that were often booked days or weeks in advance. Not wanting errors to cause delays, coders stayed late in their offices exhaustively checking their work. Right, so back when compilers actually um, gave a problem, right, that's motivation, right? These programmers wanted to avoid the pain of having a program that wouldn't launch. Now compilers just spit out errors, and they they let they let these programmers get away with releasing a product. It's kind of like letting someone graduate if if they're not ready to graduate high school, right? Oh, just just push them through, just push them through. And side note. In the early days of computers, right, let's say in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, resources were at such a premium, right? RAM and hard drive space were so small that these coders had to be efficient. But nowadays, they're ultra-bloated, and every product and every website is ultra-bloated. If you notice, over the past 10 years, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you go to a website and it was responsive, and now these websites are ultra-bloated. They're, they're basically massive operating systems that are in sites. So no matter how fast your internet connection or your computer are, um, the sites, they'll spin, right? You see these little rings that are spinning and spinning and spinning in the website um, because there's no space is no longer at a premium. So it's kind of like if I had a huge house, I'd just fill it up with clutter right away, right? Anyway, as computers became widespread, attitudes changed. Instead of meticulously planning code, programmers stayed up in caffeinated all-night hacking sessions, constantly bouncing results off the compiler. The programmers would fix the mistakes one by one until the software compiled properly. The attitude today is you can write any sloppy piece of code and the compiler will run diagnostics. If it doesn't spit out an error message, it must be done correctly, right? That's another huge concept. Well, if it looks okay on paper, it's fine. If it doesn't violate any rules and the compiler doesn't give me problems, that doesn't mean it won't be an unreliable piece of garbage, though. Okay? Uh, Or a confusing piece of garbage that just has horrible user interface, right? Nobody teaches user interface. uh, Because even if a program is reliable, um, it could be horribly designed and look horrible and be very confusing. Um, As programs grew in size and complexity, the limits of this code-and-fix approach became evident. On average, professional coders uh, coders make 100 to 150 errors in every thousand lines of code. 
100 to 150 errors in every thousand lines of code. <clears throat> Imagine, let's say your house has a couple thousand nails in it. And what if your construction workers uh, screwed up and, and broke or bent 100 out of the nails, 100 nails out of 1,000 nails, let's say. So that's 10% of the nails just are broken. And so your house is 10% weaker and eventually it'll fall apart, right? Imagine, right? What I'm saying is imagine if this skullduggery and sloppiness spilled over into other self-respecting industries, okay? <clears throat> Using these figures, Windows NT, uh, Windows NT 4.0 with its 16 million lines of code would thus have 2 million mistakes. Uh, software engineers know that their code is often riddled with lacunae. And they have long been searching for new technologies to prevent them, right? Here they go. That's their first mistake. Oh, let's rub technology all over something. No, it's called stop being a slob. Um, for example, they've developed component-based design. Just as houses are built with standardized 2x4s, component-based programs are modular, interchangeable elements. An example is the nearly identical menu bar atop every Windows or Macintosh program, right? Um, unfortunately, these components are often glued together with no central plan, no blueprints, right? And on top of that, like I said earlier, there are libraries built on libraries built on libraries. So instead of coming up with a simple program yourself, you're just slopping a bunch of other people's ultra-bloated building blocks on top of each other. Doesn't that make sense? That is how to describe the software industry in plain English. You heard it here, folks. The design for large software projects is sometimes bubbles on the back of an envelope. Worse, for marketing reasons, companies wire as many features as possible into new software. Okay? The most widespread example is Windows itself, which Bill Gates testified in April. Uh, an antitrust trial uh, simply would not function if customers removed individual components. It means there's no structure or architecture or rhyme or reason in the way they've built these systems. The inadequate design reflects inadequate planning. <clears throat> There's a sidebar here that says, first aid for faulty code. Involving colleagues like business managers, administrators, customer support agents, and user interface experts in software design meetings is obvious when you think about it, but it's hardly used at all. Again to this day, 20 years later, imagine if they had tech support people right? Like me, telling the software jokers, hey, look, it turns out in the real world, clients can't figure out how to use your garbage. Or it turns out in the real world, this thing doesn't work as intended. Or it turns out in the real world, it doesn't do what we need it to do. No software is tested. No opinions are, are taken from these tech support people uh, uh, on whom this garbage is foisted. The people that have to bear this burden on their shoulders and deal with the fallout from this filth. You getting a good idea if you're a new listener. Now you get an idea of what this show is all about, huh? Incredibly, the purpose of new software is often not clearly spelled out. And it often changes midstream as marketers come up with wish lists which with predictably bad results, right? So all of a sudden, okay, here's a piece of software, and then the marketers say, oh, you need to add 900 different more features. Yeah, you need features. Um, slapping components together by inspiration in offices full of pizza boxes and Mountain Dew. 
Okay, and, and they say that, by the way, in the book Why Software Sucks by David Platt, it's another huge inspiration for me, and I read it a very long time ago, and he says, coders don't care about money, they care about interesting projects and Mountain Dew. Anyway, um, U.S. commercial software products are so poorly planned and managed that in 2000, almost a quarter were canceled outright, and it cost firms $67 billion. I like that. Some of this stuff should be canceled. Overruns on other projects racked up another $21 billion. Again, that's the marketers wanting to add trillions of features that nobody actually cares about. Even successful projects can be wildly inefficient. Incredibly, software projects often devote 80% of their budgets to repairing flaws they themselves produced. Right? Again, go back to your construction analogy. What if you built a house and then spent 80% of the time and money fixing all the stupidity? Instead of just building it right in the beginning. Uh, 80% of their budgets are repairing the flaws, a figure that does not include the even more costly process of furnishing product support and developing patches for the problems found after the release, right? I mean, think about all the headaches that, that this stuff causes, and think about all the, the chunks of duct tape and Bondo that they have to release, which destroy your computer, because of the fact that they didn't do it right the first time. In consequence, the software can't be updated or improved with any assurance that the updates or improvements won't introduce major faults. Hello! I, I find it incredible that I'm the only voice out there, the only voice crying out in the desert for the past 20 years, to say, hey, look, updates are destructive. It's that way in spaceships, for God's sakes, the article says. Uh, and, and a couple months ago on my last show, I talked about the um, Apollo... The Apollo mission had a hidden hero software, and it claimed to praise the concept of software and how software code saved them a lot of weight, and it allowed the Apollo spaceship in the 60s to do a lot of things. But then the whole article, in reality, was talking about all the massive destruction that, that occurred and the chaos that happened and the reboots and the crashing and the unreliability. So, yeah. A uh, computer-controlled radiation therapy machine massively overdosed patients um, in in uh, U.S. and Canada, killing at least three, because the program used to set radiation intensity was not designed or tested carefully. Probably wasn't tested at all. Um, simple data entry errors should not have lethal consequences, right? You know, I grew up in a world where things work. You turn on the TV and you clunk that dial, and it actually did what you said. Consider the Mars Climate Orbiter and the Polar Lander, both destroyed in 1999 by familiar, readily prevented coding errors. If a bridge survives the 500 kilogram weight and a 50,000 kilogram weight, engineers can assume that it will bear all the values in between, okay, with, with uh, civil engineering. But with software, you can't make that assumption. Moreover, software makers labor under extraordinary demands. Ford and GM have been manufacturing the same product for decades, right? In consequence, they've been able to improve their products incrementally. But software companies are constantly asked to create whole new products, right? <clears throat> like, um, it's like a car manufacturer saying, this year we're going to make a rocket ship instead. The classic dilemma in software is people continually want more and more and more stuff. That's not true. Nobody wants these features, the software programmers would rather add trillions of features and the marketers would rather add trillions of features 
rather than fix the fundamental flaws with their product. Because if a product is flawless, people will actually use it and enjoy it, and they won't buy more stuff from you. So we're going to make horrible garbage products, and we are motivated to keep making horrible garbage so that people keep coming back. Isn't that insane? The constant demand for um, novelty means that software is always in the bleeding edge phase, right? In my book, I say, welcome to a world full of beta products, right? They're inherently less reliable. In 83, Microsoft Word only had 27,000 lines of code. Trouble is, it didn't do very, very much, which customers today wouldn't accept. If Microsoft did not keep pumping up Word with new features, the product would no longer exist. That's a lie. Nobody needed the extra features. All right, maybe people needed a couple more features from 1983 until 2023. Um, but nowadays, people don't need all this garbage. I'm actually afraid to use Office 2013 because Word and Excel, even back then, 10 years ago, were horribly confusing and horribly feature-laden. I actually use uh, LibreOffice, and I I'm one of four guys in the world who can set it up properly, so it's absolutely compatible. But the idea of LibreOffice is it's extremely simple, it does what you need, and it's absolutely free, which protects you from having to give Microsoft money. Anyway, we're not sure why we should upgrade to this new release. It has all the stuff we don't want. And when are you going to put in these three things? Software sucks because users demand it to. No, that's arrogant slobs blaming the user. In January of 2002, Bill Gates issued a call to Microsoft employees to make reliable and secure computing their highest priority. Gates demanded that Microsoft dramatically reduce the number of defects in its products. They, a month later, took the unprecedented step of suspending all new code writing for almost two months, right? Sometimes you do need to stop... Put a stop to the, the stupidity. Stop the bleeding so you can fundamentally fix yourself. So that's cool. And by the way, this must explain why Windows XP Service Pack 2 was so good. Um, so there's Windows XP, and then they came out with something called Service Pack 2 that actually locked it down and made it dramatically safer than anything in, in their history. So that must explain that. They had mass training sessions on reliability and security. Imagine that. You know, Microsoft even admitted a while ago that Windows was never meant to be on the Internet. It's so riddled with holes like Swiss cheese. It was never meant to be on the Internet. And here they are, billions of years later, still plugging up thousands of holes every day. Um, <clears throat> company executives displayed embarrassing snippets of flawed code produced by those in the audience. Uh, Gates's initiative was inspired um, in by July 2001 when a buffer overflow uh, let the code red worm victimize thousands of its corporate clients, right? And, and still to this day, it happens daily. To this day, thousands and thousands of holes are discovered in Microsoft Windows and billions and billions of people are victimized by it. Okay, where's the class action stuff? Software developers are becoming more attentive to quality. With new higher-level languages like C-sharp that don't permit certain errors, that's cool, Microsoft co-founded the $30 million Sustainable Computing Consortium, based at Carnegie Mellon, uh, with NASA and other firms, to promote standardized ways to measure and improve software dependability. Quality control efforts can pay off handsomely. In helping Lockheed Martin, uh, Praxis, Critical Systems, uh, use such methods to cut development costs by 80% while producing software that passed stringent FAA exams with very few errors. 
They will come to naught unless software developers abandon many of their ingrained practices. Hello! The mindset of the industry is to treat quality as secondary. That's still the case! Companies routinely hold bug deferral meetings to decide which defects to fix immediately, which to fix later by forcing customers to download patches, again, update attacks, or, or buy upgrades, and which to forget about entirely. That's why you never buy version 1.0 of a program. Software vendors deliver buggy, badly designed products uh, and then charge high fees for the inevitable service calls. Firms profit from poor engineering practices, right? I said that a few minutes ago. They're going to keep making you buy garbage because if something works well, and that happened with Windows XP Service Pack 2, it worked so well that no one wanted or needed anything else. So people were using Windows XP until 2014 and much later, and you should still use it because it is safe, and it's a lot safer than Windows 10. Anyway, when engineers ignore a serious flaw, there are usually plenty of reviewers, pundits, who will point it out. This is a good thing. A tech-savvy and understanding public is the best check on errant design, right? That's what I'm trying to do to you, dear listener, is raise awareness and explain things in plain English so you can see that this industry is nothing more than a giant pile of unethical practices. That's all it is. We don't learn from our mistakes. In 1996, the French Ariane 5 rocket catastrophically failed, exploding just 40 seconds after liftoff. $500 million satellite payload was a total loss due to systematic software design error, right? In most engineering fields, such disasters would trigger industry-wide reforms. As the collapse of the World Trade Center seems likely to do for fireproofing, right? Uh, but in software, there's no well-defined mechanism, right? I, I always say this. Any one little problem, I mean, every problem I see throughout the day is enough to call for the, the uh, end of Microsoft. But no, they keep going because they know where else are you going to go, right? Any of these problems would normally cause outrage, but apparently I'm the only outraged one. To the surprise of many observers, the industry is relatively free of product liability lawsuits. The I love you virus, for instance, spread largely because Microsoft, against the vehement warning of experts, designed Outlook to run programs inside of attachments, right? And Outlook to this day is a raging, unusable nightmare. Software firms have been able to avoid liability because software licenses force customers into arbitration, often on unfavorable terms and partly because lawsuits would be highly technical. Right? When you cut the tape on the package, it says by cutting this tape, you agree to we can do anything we want to you and you have no no hope. Right? It's unilateral and it's it's stonewalling and uh, there's no recourse. That's the word I'm looking for. No recourse. Um and again, awareness is the only thing that's going to help. The total cost of this decision was $8.75 billion. It's amazing there wasn't a blizzard of lawsuits, they say. And it's the same thing for everything they've done in the future, for Windows Vista, 8, 10, the Get Windows 10 scandal. The Get Windows 10 scandal a couple years back was where Microsoft force attacked Windows 10 and destroyed many computers that relied on some older version of Windows to run. They destroyed many small businesses. And only one lady sued them in small claims court and got three grand for her travel agency computer that was destroyed by the force attack of Windows 10. I uh, Think of uh, the October 2018 attack, where there was an update attack for Windows 10 that wiped out people's data with no regard to their data. 
Critics predict the lawsuits will eventually come, and when the costs of litigation go up enough, companies will be motivated to bulletproof their code. Um, it's either going to be a big product liability suit, or the government will come in and regulate the industry, right? Or, or the other alternative is, they've tried that, none of it works, because again, even if you're a monopoly, no matter how much they sue or regulate you, you're still a monopoly, there's no motivation to improve, and again, there's no motivation to improve because people will keep rewarding you if you keep selling them flawed garbage products. That's the real reason. If you actually sit down and think about the logic, that's the real reason why this industry is uniquely horrific, right? Why this industry is is so horrible, because they have no motivation to improve. This isn't an industry where you have several competitors who compete on merit. And unfortunately, the rest of the industries in the world are falling like dominoes into this new model where you rent people garbage you rent people unreliable garbage that's controlled by the factory and killed by the factory under the premise of security. Oh, you're not allowed to use this anymore because there might be problems and it's not supported anymore and you might have security problems and there might be hackers. Don't listen to them. That's all fake. Keep using your products as long as you can because that's all a fake scam in order to get you to buy more things. It's a cash grab scam. Okay? When people call me up, oh, I got a message that said Windows 7 was going out of business. No, it's a cash grab scam. It'll still work. The only time you'll have a problem is when they start force attacking their products like Sonos, which actually kills their own products after you buy them, a couple years after you buy them. Anyway, I think you got a good taste for what this show is all about. That is the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Mark Anthony Arena. This is the Computer Exorcist Podcast. You can find more about me at thecomputerexorcist.com or technosophy.com. And certainly go to my recommendations page and you can find a lot of money-saving tips to buy reliable and ethical products. And a lot of them, uh, if you buy them, they will give me a commission, so it'll help support the show. But it's all real products I used and I personally recommend. Thanks so much for listening. Tell your friends about the show. We'll talk to you next time.